Principal Matters Podcast, Episode 142. Hi, Principal Matters listeners. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the School Leaders Podcast, where each week I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, I want to talk about preventing injuries or death in sports and physical activities with your students with my guest, Dr. Douglas Kassa. Dr. Kassa is a professor at the University of Connecticut and the chief executive officer for the Corey Stringer Institute. He is also the author of a new book, Preventing Sudden Death in Sports and Physical Activities that he co-authored with Rebecca L. Stearns. Dr. Kassa, welcome to Principal Matters. Thank you for taking some time to visit with us today. Why don't you fill in the gaps on that intro and tell us a little bit more about who you are and the work that you do. Sure. First of all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, This is a great opportunity to educate some of the leadership that obviously play a big impact on some of the sport safety policies um, that happen at schools across America. My history started in this area back in 1985 when I was a high school athlete running a 10K race on the track. And I suffered an exertional heat stroke on the very last lap. So I was running 24 and a half laps. I was running one of the best races of my life. And with a half laps to half a lap to go, I collapsed. I got back up, and then I collapsed again with 100 meters to go. And then I was in a coma for um, basically the whole afternoon. And that was 34 years ago. And my whole interest and passion for this topic took shape um, on that August day um, back in 1985. So now, the Corey Stringer Institute, our focus is try to find ways to make sport and physical activity safer for the athlete, warfighter, and laborer. And obviously, our focus here today is really the, you know, the middle school, the high school athlete, the people who listen to this, this um, podcast. Um, so we're you know, going to try and help um, in that manner. Thanks for that, that background of your own story, Dr. Kassa. And I know that you're still a prolific runner now. When you and I met recently in Oklahoma, when you were doing some training here, we shared a little bit about the fact that I run on very little and you run a lot. And so I know you're still an active athlete today, as well as someone who trains athletic trainers, high school and college officials in how to identify when kids are in danger and to how to, how to prevent sudden death or even students that could have injuries related to athletic activity as well. Talk a little bit more with us about the Corey Stringer Institute, because I know there's a story there. I know a lot of people are aware of the Minnesota Vikings offensive lineman who passed away from a stroke, but tell that story a little bit and how that began the Institute work that you're doing today. Yeah. So in uh, 2001, um, Corey Stringer was an offensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings. He was in his fifth year in the NFL, one of the best offensive tackles in the NFL. And he was um, at training camp in Minnesota and it was extremely hot. It was a really brutal heat wave that they were having on um, hot days, on successive days. And on day one of practice, um, they were in full gear and they did two-a-day practice and they didn't make any modifications. Um, And it was uh, just a brutal hot day of exercise. And he wasn't feeling that well that evening struggled a little in that second practice. Um, But then the next day he went back out to practice, was working really hard again and collapsed uh, near the end of that first practice near, you know, noontime. And he uh, unfortunately had succumbed to an exertional heat stroke, was not cooled um, effectively with a, you know, something that could cool him down fast. And unfortunately um, he died from the complications from that exertional heat stroke um, the next day. In the ensuing years, his, his widow and his agents worked tirelessly to try to have a lasting legacy um, in Corey's name that might work to you know, prevent future tragedies at all levels of sport 
And they reached out to, to me because of our, our expertise in the area of exertional heat stroke and exercise and heat and preventing sudden death. And we worked together for many years, you know, through the lawsuits and then uh, were fortunate enough to work closely with the NFL to have a lasting legacy for Corey. And in 2010, the Corey Stringer Institute was, was founded. So, so next year, we'll mark our 10th anniversary. And we've been able to have, you know, uh, I think a very big influence in a very short period of time. We're in the middle of a quest right now. In fact, where you and I met each other a few weeks ago in Oklahoma, we're in the quest of visiting all 51 states over the next four years, um, if you include the District of Columbia, to try to enhance health and safety standards for high school athletes across America. So we're trying to improve some of the basic policies and procedures, especially for things related to preventing sudden death in sport, you know, that would influence all 8 million high school athletes in America. I was so privileged to set through the day of training and information that you shared with athletic directors, school leaders, athletic trainers from across the state of Oklahoma when we met at the University of Oklahoma and their training facility. And I want to talk a little bit about some of that work, Dr. Kassa, because you have been sharing across the nation with schools about better ways that they can identify when students may be in danger and how schools can better prevent or respond when students, especially are in heat or injury-related situations. So, Take us there for just a minute. I know that's a lot of information that often takes an entire day to share, but give us a brief description of some of the information you're trying to get in front of school leaders and schools so that they can better respond to serving students and keeping them safe. Our first big overarching goal is we got to figure out a way to get an athletic trainer in every high school in America. Um, Making a lot of progress right now. There's about 70% of high schools in America right now have access to an athletic trainer. That doesn't mean they're there every day, but at least they understand the the importance of an athletic trainer. For, For people listening who haven't been closely connected with the role of an athletic trainer, that's a licensed medical professional who's specifically trained in preventing, recognizing, treating, and rehabbing athletic injuries and injuries to the physically active. So that's our medical person. That's kind of our point person on campus on the high school campus that's going to implement the correct policies and procedures to one, prevent the conditions from happening in the first place, but two, to be ready to quickly recognize it and treat it when it does present itself. Along those lines and why we're traveling to all these 51 entities to try to enhance health and safety is one, to see how we can enhance athletic training services. Then second is looking at the common causes of death in sport. And the four most common causes are um, issues with the four H's, if it's an easier way for people to remember it. One is the heart, so cardiac issues. That's the leading cause of death in sport. Second is heat, so things like exertional heat stroke when your athletes get too hot during activity. Third is head injuries. Typically, it's seen in sports that have a lot of contact like ice hockey or lacrosse or football. And then the fourth is related to hemoglobin or um, sickle cell trait. Um, that's something that can, um, a problem that can present itself during very intense conditioning sessions that are not properly ramped up or phased into. The policies and procedures that we're trying to modify across America for high school sport is related mostly to those four conditions. Some of them are have really, really simple solutions to prevent them from happening in the first place or to, to easily treat them um, when they present themselves. In response to the research that you have done in looking at ways that schools can respond to the heart, heat, head injuries, hemoglobin, or sickle cell traits within students, you've developed a lot of recommendations for schools as well. And I know in your work as you've gone across the U.S., you've also tried to help states respond with appropriate policy. And so talk a little bit about that as well, Dr. Cassa, because I know you've had more success in some states than others in actually seeing legislation and policies created that better support safety for students. 
Yeah, so the two common mechanisms that we'll see policies made at the high school for the high school athlete are one, you know, legislative like laws that are passed um, through the state, you know, normal government channels. But the more common one and, and the easier one is when the policies go through the state high school athletic association. So all 51 entities, all 50 states plus the District of Columbia, they have a state high school athletic association that governs high school sports in the state. And each state also has a sports medicine advisory committee. They're called SMACs, the acronym. And they are made up mostly of um, physicians who have sports medicine background and athletic trainers. And so when those sports medicine advisory committees work closely with the state high school athletic associations, they often will you know, make a lot of nice progress to enhance health and safety standards and, and try to bring them in line with best practices. So that's kind of our intent when we visit these each state is to try to just assist them with getting the, the right language and the right implementation strategies in place to get these policies moving forward, whether they be for AEDs related to cardiac events, whether they're related to preventing or treating an exertional heat stroke, whether they have to do with emergency action plans. Um, a lot of just the core basic elements you need to have in place and that the evidence has clearly shown will decrease the likelihood of the, the, these conditions happening. And if they do happen, to make sure the athlete does not die from that. So that's kind of what we're doing right now um, is to try to you know, work towards this process. But that's, uh, it is a bit daunting since you have all 51 states that you're trying to assist. And some of them are a little more eager than others to try to make these changes. And the people that you reach out to in this program is super important because these principles um, are often part of the committees that make up the State High School Athletic Association. So they can be powerful influencers to pushing the state association to making sure that we're following best practices. Um, if you have a person who has a cardiac event in your school and there's not an accessible AED or they have an exertional heat stroke and there's not a cold water immersion tub to cool them, the school is going to be found liable and they're going to lose the lawsuit because they're, these are best practices and they're accepted standards to be available for these high school athletes. Let's talk about that for just a little bit, because I know in the practices that you shared in the training that I attended, none of these were, in my opinion, expensive or unreasonable either. They were very simple solutions for responding to students who may be in crisis. Let's talk about heat for just a moment. And I know you just referenced that, but it's not very expensive to buy a tub to ice down a student. But why is that something that high schools or junior highs, any athletic events should have in mind in their safety plan to have available in case students are overheating? Let me first start that by telling your audience that the Corey Strong Institute where I work at our website um, is ksi.ucon.edu and that's UConn, U-C-O-N-N. I just want to make a note of that at our website, we have all 51 states listed with where they stand right now with all these basic policies and procedures. So you can look up your state, say you're from Arkansas, you can pull up Arkansas and see exactly where the 100 points um, that could be obtained for the rubric for preventing sudden death in sport. And you can see exactly where Arkansas is missing some of those policies, which will help you, you know, more quickly move forward with the things that need to be modified in your state. So everyone can do that who's listening to this. A great example that you just brought up is related to heat. So, and I agree with you, most of these things are very cost effective. So for instance, the treatment of exertional heat stroke, the gold standard is a cold water immersion tub, ice and water. Now, almost all high schools in America have access to ice and water. And then, so now it would only be a Rubbermaid tub, um, a very sturdy stock tank kind of tub that can be purchased. A 150 gallon tub can usually be purchased for $100 and they could last literally for 10 years. 
A second item is heat acclimatization, which is a fancy term for phasing in um, football practices or summer practices over time so that you gradually increase the stress. Uh, most of the states in the Southeast have policies related to heat acclimatization. I mean, everyone in the country needs policies like that, and that costs no money to have the proper phase. Um, checking the environmental conditions is something called wet bulb globe temperature, which is just a fancy way of doing heat index. Those monitors can only run like $300 or $350, and they can last seven or eight years. So the cost per year might be like $50 or $60. When you combine all of the elements for heat stroke, you are looking at maybe a grand total of $500 for things that could last many, many, many years. Um, and you'd have some of the key elements in place that the scientific evidence supports for preventing and treating um, exertional heat stroke. I know that you also give recommendations, Dr. Kassa, on times when practices may need to be delayed or maybe coaches need to avoid two-a-days depending on temperatures. And, and how have you guys navigated that road? Because I know that there's a lot of pushback depending on where you are in the country and what location that you are on when students should be practicing in certain heats. I know that's a sticky situation, not to, no pun intended, depending on what part of the country that you're in, but how have you guys addressed and navigated that road with so much change across the, the nation? Yeah, so we work with the individual states to come up with their state-specific environmental modification guidelines. So for instance, Georgia probably has the best guidelines in the country. Um, and we worked with leading climatologists who understand the normal weather patterns for Georgia and work with them to develop their own work-to-rest ratios that are specific to Georgia so that it only requires canceling practices on the most extreme days in Georgia. And in a typical summer, that might only be a couple of days in the entire summer. But most of the days, it just requires on really hot days to just have more rest breaks that are longer, but it doesn't mean that people have to cancel practices. It just means you're making modifications based on the how extreme the environmental modif um, conditions are so that you're just working to keep the athletes safe. So the guidelines in Vermont are different than those in New Jersey, and it's different than those in Georgia. But the goal of all three of them are the same, and it's just to make modifications based on how extreme the weather conditions are locally for you on that given day in the summertime. What has been some of the pushback that you've experienced as you've tried to have these conversations in different places across the U.S.? And I know you have lots of stories, but I, I know that sometimes you get pushback or maybe even sometimes unreasonable response to people thinking that your recommendations might infringe upon their autonomy. How have you addressed that to assure people that the goal of the Corey Stringer Institute is student safety, not trying to restrict athletic activity? That's a good point. So yeah, so back in 2013, a very important document was published um, called Preventing Sudden Death in Secondary School Athletics. And that was endorsed by 14 of the leading sports medicine organizations in the country and also the NFHS, which is the governing body nationally for high school sports. So our goal since 2013 has to try to just get those best practice guidelines in place so we can actually influence the 8 million high school athletes. It's one thing to have the best practices, but then if no one's following them, then they're no good to anybody. So our whole goal since 2013 is to try to just work towards the implementation of best practice policies. We know they're not all simple um, in there, but many of them are actually quite simple. For instance, emergency action plans, um, no cost and pretty simple to, to get going. But uh, similar to like with heat stroke, I mean, if you cool someone in a cold water immersion tub and you start the cooling within 10 minutes of collapse from the heat stroke, survivability is 100% for anybody who's ever had that treatment and who's suffered a heat stroke. 
So and since it's very cost-effective to do something like this, we, we want that to be available for a high school football player or a cross-country runner who has a heat stroke. You know, if it's not available, the, the school is, is really going to have to potentially pay a very large price for that um, because that is just established best practice. And it's not, it's not seen um, as unreasonable to have those kinds of care items available for their high school athlete. You know, if they're sponsoring high school sport and they have paying all the coaching salaries, paying for all the equipment, paying for all the landscaping on all the acreage of fields that they have, all the insurance that they're covering, all the travel, the buses to go to meets, um, go to competitions, they could handle a few hundred dollars for heat safety um, at their school. I was really encouraged listening to the conversations that athletic directors were having at the meeting that we had in Oklahoma because so many of them were responding to your recommendations with stories of how their own schools were creating emergency plans, different from just your fire or bad weather, but emergency plans for every athletic event or facility on their campus. And I thought that was so proactive to be able to create in advance for any coach in stepping into any situation, whether it's on campus or even in, in a satellite space, like a, a golf mm-hmm. coach who takes his kids off campus, having a written plan ahead of time to know these are the steps that you're going to follow when students may be in danger. So that if there's not an athletic trainer available, you already have a plan that's developed by your team who takes care of students so that there's always someone who knows the best steps to take to ensure that that student is well cared for in a crisis. Have you guys been sharing models of emergency plans with schools or are most of those developed within the school itself? We have a lot of um, templates that states are using for policy development and also individual schools are using. And I think they've been very, very helpful because you bring up a good point. I mean, most people don't realize you need to have an emergency action plan for every venue um, that an athlete could be practicing at or having a competition at. So those are all your indoor facilities and all of those outdoor facilities that you mentioned. Um, it can even be a cross-country team that's out on, you know, at a cross-country course or like you said, a golf team. But you got to really be proactive to think about what is going to be your strategy if an emergency ever happens. And that has really been helpful, I think, for people that during a time of crisis, they've thought this through beforehand. So yeah, that's one of the examples of the things that we work with when we come to the individual state meetings. The thing you have to remember is even if a state doesn't have a policy requirement, a lot of the individual schools already have the the policy requirement because the the athletic trainer or the athletic director at the school doesn't need to wait for a state policy to be adopting best practices. So we have, you know, many schools will have them even though the state doesn't have the policy. The problem is is that the schools that don't have athletic trainers are much less likely to be following best practices. So we care passionately about those athletes also at the schools that don't have athletic trainers. Of course, we want them to have an athletic trainer, but just because they don't have an athletic trainer doesn't mean that they should you know, automatically die from a heat stroke or a cardiac event. So we think that some really basic things should be in place from the State High School Athletic Association that if you're going to, for instance, you're going to have a football practice or a game, an AED should be easily accessible, right? You should have a strategy to treat a heat stroke. Those are not really complicated things that a state should mandate, right? They mandate the length of the game, the number of officials who are going to be there, the, how many teams make playoffs. So why not, why not mandate a few really core essential health items, which I would think that most parents um, and most of the coaches and athletic directors, you know, would certainly support. And I think this is a really good conversation for school leaders, especially because often your coaches, depending on their experiences and background, have, have current training and how to deal with students that have 
heat situations or head injuries. And sometimes school leaders are former coaches who may have current training in that too. But then sometimes you have school leaders who have not had a background in coaching or athletics. And so to know that they can step into a situation where they're supervising games or activities and know that there's a plan in place for the health and safety of everyone involved, if even if you don't have an athletic trainer available, is mm-hmm. really helpful. So I really appreciated the fact that you explored ways to develop really strong emergency plans before those things happen so that a new administrator or someone who may be unfamiliar with that facility or that team could step in and help manage an emergency situation like that too. But the one area that was surprising to me that and really helpful was talking about the, the hemoglobin, the, the sickle cell traits that some students face that some coaches may misread or not understand well enough and may misdiagnose how to treat a student or an athlete when they're responding to a situation that may involve sickle cell. Can you talk about that for just a few minutes? And I know sometimes we're getting in the weeds, but I think it's just helpful for coaches and school leaders to be aware that this is a trait that can kill students if it's not properly diagnosed. So first, I'm going to just address what you first brought up related to coaching education. Because even if a school has an athletic trainer, or obviously if they don't have an athletic trainer, um, most times the sport coach is going to be the first person on site caring for the person. Because, you know, you might have a person go down on a JV soccer field. And even if you have an athletic trainer, they might be a quarter mile away on a football field, right? So that coach has to be able to recognize it first, do the initial treatment, and maybe provide treatment all the way to the EMS and EMT arrives if there's not an athletic trainer at the school. So we work really hard to, to push for coaching education requirements. Um, not to be you know burdensome in terms of the time, but the real basic things, like does a coach understand what a heat stroke looks like, how the basic things to prevent it, the basic things to recognize it, the basic things to treat it, the same with a cardiac event. What are the big ticket items? A coach should be educated on those things. So we're trying to push for some, some kind of minimum standard for coaching education that goes beyond your basic first aid and CPR and AED, because that doesn't cover a lot of those conditions that I mentioned that are causing the, the leading causes of death in high school sport. So that's one item. So, But related to that coaching education, one of the really important parts of that education is what you just brought up is sickle cell trait. Um, sickle cell trait is present um, you know, in about you know, 8 10% of African-Americans, but it's also present you know, maybe in um, 1% of some other Caucasian populations that come from Mediterranean descent, and it's, it could you know, be present in other people as well. So it's something to certainly be aware of. So the thing is, the problem with sickle cell trait presents itself when people do really intense conditioning sessions who have not prepared for those conditioning sessions. Like, for instance, like day one, doing super hard things that they're not used to. So the preventing it is having smart conditioning that phases up and ramps up the numbers, the amounts, the intensity, the duration, and you phase into it becoming more intense and not doing it all, all of it in the first few days. Um, and it presents itself, like you said, could be similar, a sickle cell trait crisis or what we call sometimes exertional sickling could present itself sometimes like a heat cramp or cramping. Um, and sometimes people mistake it for cramping instead of a sickling crisis. So that's why people need to be aware if somebody has sickle cell trait status, which is also part of the rubric when you know states that require that or not. And I'll give you an example. Every kid at birth in America is tested for sickle cell trait. So the pediatrician, for instance, would have those results. So it's not like you have to go get new results. So that's something that should be part of the pre-participation exam that's handed in either to the athletic directors or the athletic trainers at your school. So the coach would know, okay, these five players on my team have sickle cell trait. So if they're struggling during an intense conditioning session, I'm going to be extra cautious 
I'm going to give them a break. I'm going to let them, you know, have an extra rep out, you know, taking a couple minutes to just recover. You know, they can still play sports. They can do everything that you would want them to do. But we're just going to have a little extra caution with those particular five individuals because why, why take a chance, you know, because you have, you have that advantage. It's like knowing someone has asthma or diabetes or they're allergic to bee stings. It's just something to be aware of. Um, and that's a huge, a huge advantage. So um, knowing how to prevent it in the first place, knowing how to recognize it and knowing ways to prevent it from going to become something very serious are things that should be part of a good coaching education program. Well, Principal Matters listeners, I know that so many of you are managing situations at your schools where students are involved every single day in athletic activities. One of the often, sometimes the most fun parts of those students' day. And we want to make sure that you're getting the right information about how to best care for them. And so I highly recommend checking out the Corey Stringer Institute's website. And Dr. Casa has already referred to a part of that website where you can see where your state stands. If you go to the ksi.ucon.edu website and go to the tab on research. You can go to the state high school sports safety policies tab and see where your state ranks in terms of its sports safety policy rankings. Dr. Casa, as we wrap up today's show, I, I wanted to come back to the story you told at the very beginning about your own heat stroke that you had when you were a cross country athlete. Because when I met you in Oklahoma, there was a final chapter of that story that happened to you years later when you got to meet the person who had stepped in to that situation. Could you tell us that story as we wrap up today's conversation? So that was 1985. And in 2001, um, I was giving a presentation for an award I had won out in Los Angeles. And while I was giving the presentation, a, a lady who was in the audience recognized the story that I was sharing. And it's super ironic. It's the first time I ever publicly talked about my heat stroke um, at a conference or in a setting like that. That I was truly comfortable, like re rehashing this really emotional moment in my life, and a person sitting there recognized the story, and it was fascinating that after my talk, um, she reached out to me, and she was like, "You that story you told me it's that heat stroke." She goes, "I heard that story previously," and I was like, "How is that possible?" She's like, "Well, when I was at Ithaca College years ago, I had heard that story from someone who's an educator there named Kent Scriber," and she's like, "I think Kent Scriber is the athletic trainer." Who saved your life? And I literally almost dropped to the ground, like because it was so overwhelming to potentially hear that this is the person who saved your life. And amazingly, as this unfolded, we reached out to Kent. And then Kent was the athletic trainer in 1985 who had treated my exertional heat stroke. He had never known who he had saved that day when he treated my heat stroke because he just thought it was a high school track athlete from Long Island. I was 16 years old at the time. He did check on me after at the hospital the next day and it looked like I was going to survive. And that was it. And then he moved on because he was volunteering at the Empire State Games in upstate New York. He was a football athletic trainer at Ithaca for his whole career and a professor. And 16 years later, here I are giving a presentation and, and, I, and I, find out, I find out who saved my life and he found out who he saved. And ironically, the person he saved ended up becoming you know, uh, having a passion and an expert on exertional heat stroke. And the really cool part of that story is that in 1999, 2000, 2001, when he was teaching heat stroking class, he was using research articles that I had written. So he's handing out research articles to teach the topic of heat stroke and then telling this case study from 1985 of the heat stroke that he cared for and the person's article that he handed out is the author of the, that, of the same person that he saved. And he had no idea for those few years that those were the same person. 
Oh my goodness. That's an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Principal Matters listeners, I want to give a big shout out also that Dr. Casa and Rebecca L. Stearns have just put out a second edition of Preventing Sudden Death in Sport and Physical Activity. Dr. Casa, where can listeners find that book if they want access to a very exhaustive read on the best practices for caring for students and preventing sudden death? Sure. That's um, available at Amazon. I mean, it's used in courses, um, classrooms across America, but a lot of people who are establishing health and safety policies like team physicians, athletic trainers, um, athletic directors, you know, that's where they can purchase it. Well, Dr. Casa, thank you so much for the work that you're doing with the Corey Stringer Institute at the University of Connecticut. And thank you so much for visiting Oklahoma and all the states. I know that you've been on the road for six straight weeks and you've got 18 weeks to go. All the different states that you're visiting and trying to touch base with as many school leaders and athletic trainers and directors and policymakers as you can as you continue this campaign to increase school sports safety. You're doing amazing work and I'm so privileged that you gave us this time today. Is there any parting words that you'd like to share and how can listeners connect with you if they want to follow up with your information? Tell them to reach out to the Corey Stringer Institute at UConn. Send us an email if the principal or people want to um, get involved with, you know, enhancing health and safety standards at their high school or um, even better um, to try to enhance health and safety policies at the state in which they live. I will link to that website in the show notes and the contact information for Dr. Cass's Corey Stringer Institute at the University of Connecticut. Dr. Cassa, thank you so much for the time that you've given us today. Best wishes on your travels and the work that you're doing to help school leaders because what you do matters. And school leaders, I know that you are going to take this information and share it with the people in your districts and in your communities who want to enhance the student safety that you have for your student athletes. So thank you, Dr. Cassa. Thank you, listeners. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. If you'd like other free resources like this one, you can check out all my posts at williamdparker.com.